You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up, fam? Another week, another commute. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we want to welcome you into the audio experience known as Commute to the Podcast. This is the weekly educational show where we aim to entertain and inform you over the course of your average commute. On this edition of Commute, how seriously should we take UFO sightings? The answer from the Pentagon may surprise you. On January 31st, 1999, a lot of people panicked. Y2K was knocking on the door. Well, while Y2K quickly became a punchline, was there ever actually any reason to fear? Gone, but not forgotten. Why are we so nostalgic for Blockbuster in the age of streaming? All of that on this episode of Commute. Let's get it. So, Dave, when you texted me this morning and you said, hey, what are you going to cover tonight on the podcast? And I texted you back an emoji of a flying saucer. You simply texted back two words, oh, no. I will go on record and let our listeners know that I do not believe in aliens. Now, I think that there can be intelligent life somewhere in the universe. The universe is too big. And we'll get back to throwing our trash into the, the into space because I still feel very strongly about that. And I actually had some listeners send me uh, some links about why we shouldn't do that. Um, and you all are you all are wrong. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that. Well, Dave, for years it seems like discussing UFOs was only reserved for conspiracy theorists or weirdos like me. But there has really been a shift in the nature of these conversations, and more and more people are having honest conversations in the mainstream about lights in the sky and asking questions about whether or not these objects are extraterrestrial or some kind of unexplained scientific phenomenon or just top secret technology. So why the change? Well. For one, like you just said, our understanding of the universe has drastically changed over the last hundred years. As we've discovered and explored the stars, we've realized that with the vastness that is the universe, it only kind of makes mathematical sense that civilizations similar to ours exist somewhere. Now, it doesn't prove that any craft have visited us, but it certainly continues that conversation that humans have had since we realized that the Earth is not the center of everything, and it adds a lot more information and context to that conversation. In fact, like many scientists will tell you, it's mathematically impossible that intelligent life doesn't exist outside of our planet, a sentiment that you would have definitely have not heard 100 years ago. But here's the thing about that. I, I'm not going to disagree that intelligent life could exist. I just think it's more like seaweed and less like a human. <laughs> like sentient seaweed? Yeah, it's just like plants. Well, we're getting you there. You know, we're taking steps. <laughs> we're, we're getting you there. You know, I think a lot of people would say what you said, right? Like, yeah, I mean, the universe is big. There's got to be some type of intelligent life out there. But like, have they visited us, right? Like, that's kind of the thing. So let's generalize it here, okay? Because there's another conversation that's happening centering around our government as more transparency has been extended just over really the past couple years that have shown that documented proof of encounters and videos of many really does exist, but it's been kept secret. And in late 2017, the New York Times published an article that included interviews with Navy pilots and previously undisclosed videos of unexplained aerial phenomenon that hit mainstream news like wildfire and confirmed something very important, that UFOs, whatever they are, are real. Now, the government has been collecting these accounts and does not have an answer as to what these pilots have been seeing, 
but that makes them, by definition, UFO sightings. Uh, In fact, just a few weeks ago, 60 Minutes ran a segment that interviewed several Navy pilots about their strange encounters, including an interview with Louis Elizondo, a 20-year military veteran who worked at the Pentagon's Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, who said this, Imagine a technology that can do six to 700 G-forces, that can fly at 13,000 miles an hour, it can invade radar, it can fly through air, water, and possibly space, and has no obvious signs of propulsion, no wings, no control surfaces, and yet it can still def the natural effects of Earth's gravity. That's exactly what we're seeing. And while this information doesn't provide any new insights to people who study this sort of thing, it does represent a change in the way we have this conversation. Now it's much more public, and it seems to actually have some credibility behind it. Many of these pilots report seeing objects that defy technology as they know it in terms of speed or that it can change direction on a dime. And these encounters are obviously ones that the Navy would like to gather more information on, little green men or not. Could countries or people with a lot of money or just really intelligent engineers be testing technology that the U.S. government's not aware of? Possibly, but wouldn't they want to know more about that? Clearly, the government has broken the stigma and is interested in getting to the bottom of these sightings. So I listened to a report one time about stress and how stress will make you think something that's not actually happening. Okay, so the study focused on when people wreck their cars, like when they drive off cliffs. And the reports come out that the brakes had malfunctioned in their vehicles. That's why they drove off the cliff. When what actually happens is people get stressed and think they're hitting the brake and they're actually hitting the gas. So when we get stressed, our our brains become clouded. Our judgment becomes um, a little shaky. That's exactly what's happening with these guys. Well, maybe uh, for the UFO believer we'll get some of our questions answered because the second COVID spending bill that was passed in the fall of last year and actually funds the U.S. intelligence agencies included a provision deep within the bill requiring it to release a report on UFOs and the Pentagon has promised to release a report by June 1st, 2021, a.k.a. tomorrow. In January of 2021, the CIA dumped thousands of UFO documents to the public and Now you have lawmakers, reporters, even heads of state openly discussing unexplained aerial phenomenon. Dave, I think it's time for you to stop doubting and get on board because 2021 is about to be the year of the UFO, baby. Jay, do you remember New Year's Eve 1999? Do you remember what you were doing? I mean, not really. I know the association with Y2K and all that was kind of coming up, but I didn't really like get... Y2K until after it was over? You were too busy worrying about what was going on on Mars and not on Earth. (laughs) Maybe. Well, I was pretty young in 1999. I was maybe 12 or 13. And I was at my grandparents' house, as I often was, for New Year's Eve 1999 when I was a kid. And while my teenage brain didn't really care too much about Y2K, so in your defense, I was well aware that there was at least some tension in the air in my household. In fact, my granny was adamant that people not get anywhere near the phone, now this is back in the day of landlines, for fear that a rumored deadly static shock would travel through the phone line and kill everyone in the house. (laughs) poor, Poor sweet granny. Well, sweet granny was far from the minority in her fears over the change from 1999 to the year 2000. So Jay, as a refresher for some of our audience and a history lesson for the rest and you, 
The Y2K scare, as our calendars turned to 2000, was based on a computer flaw referred to as the Millennium Bug. When complex computing systems were first created and put into place in the 1960s, computer engineers used a two-digit code for the year within the programming, basically meaning they left out the 19. So code in 1965 would appear as 65 and so on. So the bug represented a dire need for a four-digit code. Basically, people had no idea what was going to happen whenever these computers turned over from 99 to 2000. So was this, because again, it's like, I, I feel like I just wasn't plugged in at the time that it was going on. Was this fear so widespread to where it was kind of like a household conversation, or was it just kind of like computer people were freaking out behind the scenes about it? Kind of a little bit of both. There was some panic buying going on, but there was also a lot of work going on behind the scenes, and those are kind of the unsung heroes of this story that we'll get to in just a second. So as I mentioned, the fear was that these computers could not interpret the OO as opposed to the 19, and that this glitch in the system would lead to chaos, like widespread blackouts across the country and infrastructure damage. So, as I'm sure we are all aware, the story does have a good ending. The clocks did go from 99 to 2000 just fine, and nothing happened. All of the panic buying quickly turned into punchlines, as Y2K ceased to be the monster under our collective bed and instead turned into an endless well of content for Saturday Night Live and late night TV in general. And Jay, as we look back now, 21 years later, it has become increasingly clear that Y2K is now only seen as a joke because the right people took it seriously. So behind the scenes, as you mentioned just a couple moments ago, technology professionals spent the better part of the 90s and billions of dollars updating and testing computing systems to ensure that nothing would happen. In 2019, Time magazine quoted Paul Sappho, a then-adjunct professor at Stanford University, as saying the Y2K crisis didn't happen precisely because people started preparing for it over a decade in advance. And the general public, who was busy stocking up on supplies and stuff, just didn't have a sense that the programmers were on the job. It was better for those efforts to be an anonymous success than a public failure if things didn't go as planned. So let's say that those programmers decided to take those 10 years off and not really prepare for this. Or maybe they just didn't think it was a big deal and they just kind of let these computers and systems run their course. Like what would have happened? Yeah, fantastic question. And I think a lot of things that we really can't predict now would have happened. A lot of errors and disruption within our banking system um, was, was very feared at the time. But we do have some examples of incidents that did take place when the clocks turned over to midnight that kind of highlight what the potential disasters could have looked like. So here are a few of my favorites. A video store in upstate New York tried to charge a customer $91,250 after computers showed a rented movie was being returned 100 years late. (laughs) Data banks in Venice and Naples, Italy, listed prisoners due to be released January 10th as having completed their terms January 10th, 1900. Two minutes after midnight, now Jay, picture that you worked in this plant, a nuclear power plant in Japan had its nuclear active alarms go off, sending the entire plant into a panic. (laughs) In Denmark, the Millennium Baby was born, originally listed on the birth certificate as being 100 years old at time of arrival, 
And it also signaled the end of the Y2K survival kit phase, a $16 million business in 1999. The temporary yet booming industry made boxes with flashlights, dehydrated food, and blankets. And Jay, they came with a strict no-return policy. In the great year of 1985, a store opened in Dallas, Texas with an inventory of 8,000 VHS tapes called Blockbuster. And within a few years, Blockbuster had expanded to 9,000 stores worldwide and employed 83,000 plus people, including a very young Dave Traub. Be kind, rewind, baby. My favorite job ever. Blockbuster worked there in high school. Almost skipped college to take the store management job at Blockbuster. You are, I don't know if you knew this or not, you are sharing this podcast with a record holder. I still, because Blockbuster doesn't exist anymore, I still, I'm sure, hold the record for most Blockbuster rewards memberships sold. Well, it's a good thing you didn't take that job because... Um, well, we all know what happened to Blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> but I could have saved it. Maybe I could have saved it. <laughs> yeah, that's what they were missing. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the model, it is simple. Blockbuster owned rows of movies and video games. Customers would come into the store, choose a movie, take it home to watch, and then return it after rewinding the movie, of course. And it has been seven long years since Blockbuster officially retired, except for one holdout store that remains in Bend, Oregon. But it is clear that Blockbuster nostalgia is at an all-time high. The high sales of Blockbuster merchandise, alongside the success of the last Blockbuster documentary, which was one of Netflix's most viewed programs this spring, are proof of that. Whether we miss the Blockbuster nights, the excitement of picking out a movie, or the satisfying click of the plastic cases, we are missing Blockbuster, despite the fact that the company officially declared bankruptcy in 2010. Although Blockbuster wasn't the only place that families rented movies. In fact, Blockbuster only owned an estimated 40% of the movie rental market at its height. But the name Blockbuster became synonymous with movie rentals. From the iconic Blockbuster blimp that flew high above college football games to their nostalgia-inducing commercials that filled our TVs, the name brand was and is very powerful. That combined with the fact that renting movies in the 90s was just a big deal. In fact, about half of American households were in a video store every week, and VCRs were in 90% of homes. For about 20 years, this was the predominant way that Americans entertain themselves on the weekends. Unlike a streaming service today, going to Blockbuster was an experience from the carpet to the popcorn machines to the rows of movies to browse. Well, there's a reason we used to say make it a Blockbuster night. I mean, you said it a couple minutes ago. The experience of going to Blockbuster does not exist anymore. The the feeling, not just the going into that particular store, but what it represented. It was the perfect date night to go in there, spend an hour picking out a movie that was the perfect way to start a Friday night. And, you know, going to Blockbuster wasn't perfect. Uh, Late fees could be particularly devastating to the wallet. And, in fact, a $40 late fee is allegedly what prompted Reed Hastings to start Netflix in 1997, which is kind of ironic. But all can be forgiven because this is how the nostalgia factor works. As we move forward through time, we tend to amplify the positive aspects of an experience and minimize the negative. More 
than likely we're not missing Blockbuster itself, but rather the cultural experience of renting a movie alongside a time in our life where maybe the world was a little simpler. This is why we get nostalgic for the old way of doing things sometimes, even if that way is outdated or inefficient. As the age of streaming accelerates and Blockbuster fades into the rearview mirror, I think it's good to look back and appreciate the times we had together, a relic of the past, one that reminds me of an innocent time in my own life, and that sort of nostalgia is worth appreciating. Okay, a couple stray observations here. Okay, uh, Number one, it still shocks me how mad people were when we transitioned from VHS to DVD. There is nothing better about a VHS tape compared to a DVD. You don't have to rewind DVDs. People lost their minds. Next stray observation. These, these other video rental stores that existed... Give me a break. They were gimmicks. It was a tanning booth slash rental facility. I can't remember what they were called. It was like Real Flicks or something. Get out of here with that. The last one, Blockbuster towards the end did away with late fees, but really dropped the ball on the marketing messaging for it. So all these signs we had up all all over the store said, the end of late fees, the start of more, (laughs) which just made people think, oh, so new late fees. Great. And that's it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Commute. And I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I'm going to make it a blockbuster night. I'm going to rent a movie just in honor of Blockbuster. Block, but the one Blockbuster in Oregon, please reach out to us. We will let you uh, support our podcast financially, and we will put an ad on our podcast for Blockbuster. Yes, we would love to do that. Heck, we'd probably do it for free. Don't tell Jay that. <laughs> Don't forget to please rate, subscribe, and review to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Just takes a couple minutes, and it helps us out a ton. Music for Commute is provided by my man Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, his alien-loving self, I am Dave Traub. Go out and rent a movie. We'll see you next week.